Hello, and you are most welcome to episode 161 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop gaming and a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. My name is Ronan, and I'm going to be your only host for today. Uh, much as I've been missing for the past few months due to a uh, move of house and a promotion and some other stuff going on, Sean now needs to take a step back for a while, sort out some more important and real life stuff, let's be honest, and you're going to be hearing from me for the next uh, few episodes, uh, or at least the next couple, and I hope that's going to be entertaining to you guys, stick around. What I'm going to do though is, you're used to hearing from Sean and I, generally our reviews tend to run a bit longer. It's just been our style since we started eight years ago. With just me talking, when I listen to one person talking about uh, games, unless they're very, very good, and I'm not, they're going to sound like kind of like a dictator because Sean and I pick apart lots of aspects of games and we throw questions at each other and it can go on for certainly the, the first couple of games we do an episode and the heavier games we play. And I don't think you want to hear me talk about a game for that long. So I'm going to run through my reviews of six games I've played. And then I'm going to talk about games that have come into my collection that I've bought and games that I've backed on crowdfunding. Now, the six games I've played, these ones, because I haven't been around for so long, I'm sure you will be missing me. We're going to go back a little bit. We're going to go back a few weeks. And I'll cover some from there. And the next episode, I'll start trying to catch up. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to catch up on the plays over the past three months or so and just give you a few quicker reviews of those games. Hopefully, I can get Sean in for a top 10, possibly. I'm going to try and twist his arm. And also, at some point, we've got to do our review of 2020, which is going to be as odd as everyone else's is. But we're not going to keep talking about how strange it was We've played some of the games from that year, so we're going to give you our usual review from there, and I'm definitely going to try and get Sean along. So, I said I'm not going to take too long. Hope this will be a shorter running time than usually, unless I really climb up myself. I'm going to kick into my first review. And the first game I'm going to review is Red Cathedral. One to four players. It says about about 90 minutes playtime. I think that's even higher. I think it plays a bit quicker than that. And the designers are Israel Sandredo, uh, Sheila Santos, and it comes from Devere Games. And Red Cathedral is all about building St. Basil's Cathedral in the Kremlin area of Moscow, the Kremlin Fortress. And the way the game works is there's a cathedral plan that's laid out. And depending upon the number of players, that's going to be different. And it varies as well within player counts. So it doesn't always look the same. And what that is, is a series of cards that are laid out in a certain number of towers. And they comprise bottom sections, middle sections, and top sections. So that's already designed for you. So you're not the architect of the cathedral, but you are the builders. And competitively, you're going to be racing to complete those different sections of the cathedral. And in fact, the game will finish when someone has completed all six that they can possibly claim. So it scales nicely for the different player counts. Mechanically, it's really all about dice selection in order to gain different resources. And then take an action. So you take an action to select the dice to take one of the resources in the game, or you can take an action to deliver these goods to the different cards which compromise the cathedral. When you've delivered everything that a card needs, it flips over, and that's going to help you score points. In terms of the dice selection itself, there are different colours of dice, and one of which is associated to yourself. And you're going to move one around a circle. And there are eight spaces in the circle, and the eight spaces all correspond to eight different resources you can collect. And when you move a dice, you move it according to the number of pips that it's showing. You move it that many spaces clockwise. Then when you get to that 
end area, the number of dice in there is going to tell you how many resources you get. And for some of them, like gold and gems, the, the more valuable ones, you're only going to get one per dice in there. For more common ones like stone and wood, you're going to get two per dice in there. Then you're going to roll any dice that are in that area. The other thing you're going to get to do when you're doing that and you're going to collect those resources is that there are actions associated. And there are four different actions and they're each associated with associated even with two spaces on the board and they're called seasons but it doesn't really mean anything that and they're ways that are going to let you break the game a little bit and trade resources around or, or possibly earn a point here or there and there are variations of those powers as well another way in which the game slightly varies and mixes up a little bit one of the interesting things about collecting these resources is that you have a workshop where you have to store the resources and that's got limited spaces now the more spaces you claim or more cards you claim in the cathedral the more space opens up for you within your board, within your workshop. But it still feels really tight. And this resource space limit is definitely part of the game. And it's definitely, uh, there's a pull here between, you love obviously to hoard loads of resources and then grab certain cards because certain cards score more points than others or they give you money back to help you get in with your, with your engine because with money what you're going to do is you can upgrade your workshop so that when you select a certain color of dice to move around, you're going to be able to get a bonus every time you use that particular color. And you can boost all the different colors and your own color dice. But your own color dice is more flexible because you can pay money to move that further. And the same with the white dice, which are you know, considered to be neutral. So you're going to have a little tiny bit of an economic engine. It's not vital, but it can help you. It can help you get more resources. But there's no point just grabbing those because you're going to run out of space. And it's going to force you to choose cards you would love to hang around and wait for the highest value ones. But you can't always wait for the highest value ones. So getting those resources out of the cards, completing them, flipping them is going to score you points. But also within these towers as they build up, as I said, it's, it's split into different towers and they're of various different heights. Once a, a card is completed and flipped, each card has got space for ornaments and their doors or windows or a golden sort of setting the top of the spire, depending upon which one it is, a bottom, middle or top. And you can take a turn delivering not just goods to the cards, but you can deliver in order to make ornaments. Now, the way this is all interesting is because the scoring comes at the end of the game and it's a majority scoring. And whoever has built the majority of each tower is going to get the full points for the tower based on how much of it has been built. So if a tall tower has been completed, it's going to be worth way more points than a shorter tower that hasn't been completed. And you get area control points, if you like, in order to score the victory points by building sections of a tower, but also by having ornaments on there and putting ornaments on, you can put them on anyone else's. And having built a section gives you sort of two area control value, but having an ornament gives you one area control value. And it becomes, as soon as someone finishes an area, if other two people are vying for control of it, you might be wanting to jump in with an ornament. But when you put an ornament on, it costs basic resources. But if you can add these, as I said, rarer gems in there, you'll score more points just for building the ornament. But you've got to have those in, in abeyance and held in escrow ready to pounce in. But like I said, you need the resource space because you're planning yourself what cards you want to buy. And it's limited. And it all works really nicely. You can probably hear like I'm smiling when I'm talking about the game because to me, this really felt like a classic Euro as I would understand that term. And I don't mean by classic Euro, a three hour multi-layer, I do 28 things to get one piece of wood. You know, you've heard me moan about that sort of thing before. Every time I'm taking an action in Red Cathedral, I'm getting something from it. 
And it's not lots of steps to see a result of that. It's I'm grabbing wood. All right, I can put that wood into the cards I have. Right, I'm grabbing gems because I know exactly what I'm doing with it. It's not a huge, almost alchemical process to go through seven different stages to distill finally into scoring points. I can directly see what I'm doing. What clicks in with that is I said that it's listed as 30 to 120 minutes. I think they're sort of saying 30 minutes per player for a game. And I haven't found that. We're getting this done in 60 minutes. Easy for a three or four player game. That adds to the bonus. As a man who now has three Kallaks spread throughout his house, including Kallaks in Eleanor's bedroom holding games, it's a really small box. And I like that. And I know that it isn't that important, but it is to me. Because now I can store more games. So that's lovely. And I don't mind a big box game, but having the small ones just one little... Nice. So the funny thing about Red Cathedral is it's made me feel nostalgic, even though it's a newer game, because it brings me back to the sort of games that got me into gaming, if you like. It really tickles my particular... Now, I like to think that play all different types of games. I deliberately try to. It's one of the things the podcast has brought to Sean and I is that I'll try that because people are talking about it, or I'll try it because... It's an area I don't play that much. So sometimes we end up playing games that maybe we don't like as much and I'm not as comfortable with it. And that can be a positive, but it can be a negative. With Red Cathedral, the point I'm getting to is it sits so nice in me. It's like a warm feeling to play it. A quick race off a Euro where everyone can see what's going on. It's very clear. The race aspect is clear. When someone jumps in with an ornamentation or grabs a card that you wanted, it's straight away, ah, I can see the impact of that. And that's really nice to play sometimes. So Red Cathedral got lots of bars. It sold out. I grabbed it on its second print run through and I really enjoyed it. It's not world changing. It's not my favorite game ever, but I think it's probably going to be in the top 10 for the year because it just works and I really enjoy it. So there you go. Lots to like in Red Cathedral. June Imperium is the next game I'm going to talk about. Now, let me read this out. It is 60 to 120 minutes. I think you're looking at the far end of that. Rather than Red Cathedral is quicker than they said, I think. June Imperium takes a little while to play. It's for one to four players, but I think you probably want three or four to get the best out of it. Although, for solo and two-player game, when we have done this, it's got a deck of cards within the box, which runs in effect an automa, a simple one, which just does the interactive parts of the game. But also there's an app that does that. And interestingly on the app, what Direwolf Studios have done, and they're the publishers of this game, is that they have put in an extra card or two, I believe, into the app, which aren't present in the physical box to kind of mix things up a little bit. It's a free app, but I can see some people might not like that, but I mean, surely, you know, you've, you've got a phone that uses apps, 99% of people, but whatever, either way. I still think you're better playing at three or four player, although that, that feature does work okay. It was designed by Paul Denon, by the way. So what is it? It's one of these sort of rash that we seem to have had of deck building, card-driven, hybrid with worker placement games. And as such, is being talked about within that sort of, uh, you know, that collection of games, Lost Ruins of Ireland being a prominent member of that, that all seem to come out at the same time together. It's very much a contest though, in this one, in that each turn you're going to have a small hand of cards. You're going to have basically two workers to put out to play. And 
what card you play dictates where the workers go, but the cards you keep back in your hands will also have a function once you run out of workers. Now, I say when you run out of workers because there's a third worker you can pay money to get for the rest of the game. There's also a fourth worker, the Mentat, which you can hire for you to use for one round only. But once you have stopped placing workers out on the board, the rest of the cards in your hand then will give you it may be something towards the combat that's going to happen at the end of every round. It might be uh, some currency. Now, it's not money because money is actually a resource in the game along with water and with spice, as you'd expect with the Dune game. But it gives you the resource, I think it's called prestige, I could be wrong, in order to buy more cards. There's a market of cards. Um, everyone starts with the same basics as you expect with a deck builder. And from that market, you can choose cards. Now, the cards are going to be able to put you into different areas of the board, which I'll go through in a second. And also they're going to have these two functions, something that when you play it, it gives you, or something if you hold it back for the end of the round, that it might give you. So it can be interesting the way and what cards you buy. To me, as I've been playing, what I've found is that actually there's a huge amount of variety in the deck. And when the market cards comes out, the ability to get combos going is a bit hit and miss because there's so many different cards in the game. You're not going to see the majority of them in each game that you play. So therefore, if you're trying to get up some Ben Jesseric cards or some Fremen cards, whatever it might be, I don't really know what these things mean. I've just played the game a bit. <laughs> um, it might work. It might not. And generally, it's out of your hands. Okay, in terms of what you can do, when you're putting out workers, you can either put them onto the planet of Arrakis, which is where Spice comes from. I'm going to say very quickly, as far as I understand, Spice is the most valuable stuff in this area of the galaxy or whatever, and it, the economy is based around it, roughly. So getting Spice is always handy. For the more valuable areas down there, though, you're going to need water, which is very difficult to get hold of. And by getting Spice, you can turn it into money. And as I said, those are the three resources. What's funny about the resources is that Spice is always handy, Water was handy because it lets you get a spice. But in terms of money, the first time I played, I went for a money-heavy strategy, and then I didn't have anything to do with my money. <laughs> because once I'd bought my extra worker, I was kind of, what do I do now with it? And there are a couple of places you can go that you spend money, but I, I was really struggling to spend all the money I had. And then it kind of clicked to me, obviously that was a harsh way to learn, that this works a bit differently. It's a bit different, the economy of this game. It's it's not just like get loads of money and then you can buy the best cards because you can't buy cards with money. You need prestige to do that. Money's just one more tool and it's not as valuable as it is in many, many other games. For a game that's you know about this spice and this rare resource, it's almost not as capitalist as some other games are, I guess, but I don't want to get too political about that. The other place you can go is uh, you can go to areas. Now, I don't know the theme very well. Some other areas which allow you to get some resources. I think it's like on Arrakis, but it's not where you get the spice from. You can go to where sort of like the government is and that's where you can spend money. You can go to like where the merchants are and that's where you can turn spice into money. And then there's four factions down the left-hand side. Uh, the Freemen, the Benjesserit, the Empire, and I think it's the Traders or something. I'm sorry for the horrible, horrible thematic talk on this. Like I said, I played these games a few weeks ago and I don't know the Dune thing very well. I started trying to read the book twice and I'm sorry, don't throw anything at your device. I didn't like it. Okay. Down the left-hand side, the difference in these four, why I sort of said them differently, is every time you select one of the two action spaces with your worker for these four factions down the left-hand side, you move up in reputation with those factions, 
when you get above a certain level you earn a point it's one of the ways of earning points and earning points are very limited in june imperium once you get above another line you become sort of really solid with them i can't remember what it's called but then you get a temporary point from them and you get an extra boost and when you have that it powers up some of the cards in the game but equally it's a temporary victory point you can earn points by boosting reputation with the faction you can get those almost temporary but second point for being highest up and high up in reputation with the faction but if someone goes above you they can steal that point when you're buying cards there is a card you can buy that costs a load of, of this prestige but it will, it will score your point as soon as you buy it but it's not that good after that so it can clog up your deck although there's not many rounds in this game but finally i did mention conflict briefly there at the end of every round there's going to be a conflict now some of them are randomized the first one is more or less always the same. The last few are more or less always the same. The ones in the middle are randomized. But you're going to get benefits from winning this conflict. And some of them are points. But it's the first player to 10 points at the end of a round who will win the game. Or if someone's got to 10, whoever's got the most points. And as you can kind of hear, you've either got to get a reputation or you've got to buy these cards which are hard to get or you have to win those conflicts. And when you get to the second half of the game, those conflicts can be one, two points usually. And it becomes very important. And this is where a lot of the player interaction comes from. Obviously, in any worker placement, when you place a worker down, you block everyone else out. That's part of the interaction. The way this conflict works is that you have to hire troops in by certain actions. But whenever you go to certain action spaces that have conflict swords on them, you can then add in soldiers into the conflict area. And there's definitely a, a rhythm to that, an ebb and a flow. Sometimes, especially... Well, it depends on what you're your opposition are doing but sometimes you're going to go heavy into a conflict and you're really going to hope that you don't get messed up there because you're not going to be available for the next conflict if you like if you've gone in heavy on this one it's going to take a while to build your troops back up and this everyone sometimes throws himself into a conflict and then the next one someone might win with only two troops because you've all gone in really hard you, you over invested you threw good money after bad if you like what's another twist to this is when you throw those cards down at at the end of your turn, they can add power to your troops, depending on what cards you've bought. Also, there are these intrigue cards in the game, which if you have more than four, you kind of become vulnerable to a space that can nick them from you. So you don't want to keep too many of them. Some will score you in-game points. Some of them will let you sort of boost things you do during the game. And a lot of them are linked to conflict because when we get to conflict phase, we go around the table and everyone gets a chance to play these intrigue cards from their hand. And they can swing a battle as well. So if someone's got entry cards in their hand, you kind of know they're plotting something, but is it just in-game scoring or are they looking to come in on this fight? They have to be involved in the fight for them to be any use, but some of them can be very powerful. So you do, or I do get that feeling off the back and forth that there's stuff that's going on which is open to everyone, but there's also stuff going on in the background. That's as much of a theme of June as I'm interested in. And it works for me. And to be honest, the whole game works for me. Well, it's odd. And the oddness kind of makes it hard to love because that economy works strangely, because there's a direct conflict for points in grabbing them, in all the ways of grabbing them mostly, but it's a Euro game. It really is a Euro game, even though I'm saying there's all this swinginess and stuff like that. And the rhythm of it is very odd, and you get very few actions really in the whole game, and you're limited in your actions by the cards you have in your hand. And it feels like you're the sort of greater forces at work, and you're not fully in control of your own destiny or maybe that's just me being bad at the game and it is an odd duck and some people have played with it and been like oh i'm not sure about that it's grown on some people it's fallen away for some people for me i've always quite liked it and i'm still staying here saying yeah 
yeah, it's a good game. It's, a, it's, a, it's an odd experience, but I quite enjoy the process of it, and it feels different to anything else I've played. So I'm going to keep June Imperium as a sort of, I don't know, a, a, an odd addition to my collection, if you like. I don't know that it was the clearest review ever. It's almost one of those, you're going to have to play it, but also be aware that each of your plays can feel quite different, and you're going to have to find your own path through each play in order to be successful. Now, okay, let's move on. These four are going to be quicker reviews, I promise you. The next one I am going to review is from Capstone Games, the darling of many people in the industry, and rightly so. But this one is Curious Cargo, not one of their bigger releases. Now, Curious Cargo is like a two-player distillation of, I think, Pipeline, or certainly takes some of the ideas from Pipeline. This one was designed by Ryan Courtney, it's for two players only, and it takes 30 to 60 minutes. What it's all about is that you both have your own blank factory floor where you're going to put tiles onto it. What you're trying to do is create a network of pipes of two different colours, of red and blue, and they're going to run from these machines which are already pre-printed on your board, and you're going to try and connect these machines up to loading or receiving bays on either side of your own board and your loading bays on the left hand side are going to have trucks come up to them get loaded up with these goods these red or blues depending on what color of pipelines connected to it and then drive on to the other players receiving bays where they're hoping to have their pipes connected to the right color of the right arrival of a color good in order for them to receive that good and score points the trucks come in different sizes so when you're taking the truck uh, via cards, you're kind of being careful. If I take a five one in here and it pushes that three in front of it, where are the, where are the empty spaces going to be adjacent to? Will I be able to put the, the goods from the machines into the right slots on, on these trucks? And then equally, if I get the next one and I push everything forward, am I lining up so that my opposition is going to take the right colour off these trucks and it's going to benefit them? There's score tracks, but they're sort of odd score tracks in that there is a scoreboard but they've got different tracks on it and you move up the tracks but you don't score directly what you've moved up. it doesn't tell you what your points are as you move up you get some benefits by metal draft more tiles or get trucks or whatever and then um at certain points you're going to score a point for being at a certain area and also they're the timer of the game once a certain number of goods have been pushed out and received the game is going to finish why am I slowing down and muttering over this? Well, firstly, Curious Cargo was brutal to learn. The rule book is incomplete and is absolutely full of assumptions. And it mentions things and it doesn't tell you what they are. And it just assumes you're going to work stuff out. And that happens a few times. So I, I, I didn't enjoy the game. I didn't enjoy the process of learning the game. I found it very difficult. I went on BGG. I asked a load of questions. I got some answers back. That clarified some of the minutiae for me, but the flow of the game and how to score points was still very obtuse. I think the graphic design is really bad, especially for how am I getting rewards from what I'm doing. I don't really understand what's... And it takes a while to click in. From there, it then becomes really difficult to teach because as you're explaining it to the other player there's not those visual aids that are clear for them to understand and go, oh, I see exactly that. I, yeah, I, oh, I see that exactly here. Um, I'm going to give you an example about a game that I'm going to review in a few episodes' time. Shawnee and I played it recently. And you get bonus points for getting to a certain level on a track. 
So let's say I have seven points, I get a bonus point. I get eight smiley faces, I get a bonus point. It's not marked on the track. There's no difference on that track to tell you, right, this is the point. First person to get here gets a bonus point. It's that sort of thing. I know that's an example of a different game, but it's that sort of thing is throughout this whole game. Nothing's there to help you. It almost assumes that you're familiar with this game, but this game is very odd and it's very difficult <laughs> and the actions are really very limiting. You're, you're just doing very, very small gains every turn. You, ha- you know, you're, you've got a very small number of tiles you can choose from. The tiles are really obtuse. It's very, like they wiggle all over the place. It's very difficult to make sense and get a network because they're, they're rectangular. So there's, rather than having sort of four or whatever, there's, there's six ways that the pipes can come in and out of. And they're of the two different colours. And it's, I mean, I think I'm quite good at, at tile lane and root building. You know, it's not something I struggle with or anything like that. I'm saying I'm quite good at winning, but I don't struggle to understand these games. I just found this tedious. I'm just, I'm waiting for shapes to come in. And you can overbuild. So it might be a case of, right, okay, I'm going to overbuild here because I can't find the right shape to do this so I'm going to build over it and start a different shape and then you might get the tile that would have worked with the tile you've overbuilt but you had no idea that was coming because you're dealing with very small numbers of tiles equally you're dealing with very small numbers of trucks so in theory if I build my ports in certain areas in order to to fill them up in certain ways I should be able to do that but I don't get to have much choice of what size truck I'm taking each time so it's, it, it was much more for me just hit and miss just push the trucks through eventually they'll fill up with some goods and that was quicker than trying to be accurate and trying to wait and trying to do it well it would just spam it just, just push them through push, it'll work out in the end anyway and in terms of building my receiving ports I wasn't strategizing that I was just leaving as many open, open sort of possibilities as I could and then waiting for for the trucks to come to me and then hopefully trying to fill in quickly oh that one's going to come to me there maybe oh, oh quick and I never felt like I was doing anything clever. I never felt like I was in charge. I never felt like, oh, look at this network that I've built. I really enjoy this. I felt like I was fighting against limitations constantly. I found it frustrating. I found the scoring obtuse and unnecessarily so. I have seen it defended online, but to be honest with you, and this is just my observation, I have only seen it defended by people who really enjoyed Pipeline. And I've never played Pipeline. So I presume if you have played it, the knowledge of knowing that game will help you learn and play Curious Cargo. But if you haven't played it, certainly from my experience, honestly, I found Curious Cargo terrible. It was a really terrible experience from opening the rule book to playing it a couple of times to selling it. The selling it was the best thing because the fellow I sold it to was a very nice bloke. And he sent me nice messages on Facebook. So, okay, there you go. At least it got me a, a link to someone who was very pleasant within our community. But Curious Cargo was a big, big miss for me. Right, fourth game I'm going to talk about is another darling that has been lauded in certain areas, certainly across the dice tower it has been, and this is Nadavalier. I know Sean wanted to be on for the review of this because I know that he likes it a lot. So that's his thought of it. What is Nadavalier? It is themed around a dwarf kingdom. And you are going to hire the most skillful dwarfs and the most prestigious heroes to build a battalion. And these dwarves and heroes come from different factions. And what happens each round is, I better tell you it's from, by the way, it's 30 to 60 minutes. It was designed by Serge Leger and it's published by, or originally, uh, Blackrock Games, a French game. These 
dwarfs get set out in taverns. They're just called taverns. And you have a set of coins. You have five of them. And from the three taverns each time, you're going to look at the dwarfs that are available and you're going to decide from your five coins which coin you want to bid on each of the three taverns. And they've all got different values on them. You also have a zero coin. When we get to each tavern, you flip over the coins. Whoever has bid the highest coin is going to get first choice of the dwarfs available in there. And you're trying to build up strength in factions because the strongest person in each faction during each scoring, there's multiple rounds, is going to um, score points. But also you're trying to get one of each faction because when you get one of each faction, you're going to get to choose a hero which is available. There's a load of them available. They've all got different powers. They can boost you in factions. They can break the rules a little bit. You can get combos of different heroes that will score in different ways. And in this way, you're trying to decide yourself where I'm going strong, where I'm going weaker. Oh, and, and also by being the lead, you get special powers as well from the different factions. That zero coin, the reason for it is that if you bid with a zero coin, of course, you're going to get last choice from that particular tavern, but you get to upgrade one of the coins you haven't bid with, and the coins go way, way up, 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 up in, in value. And there's two good things to that is, one is it's going to be more powerful for bidding later on in the game. If you don't upgrade your coins, you're always going to get last choice. Secondly, the total value of coins that you've got at the end of the game, when you add it all together, is going to be part of your scoring. So... It's a quick under an hour bidding game where you're trying to collect these sets, but you're not also because you're trying to get these very powerful heroes and there's lots of special powers and all the heroes are individual. I was excited about Nadavali. It got good wrecks or some good people. And I was like, right, let's get this out. And we played it four player a couple of times. And I was more interested during the game of what I was doing than what anyone else was doing around the table. Partially, I'm going to say that is because of lack of familiarity with the game, because there are so many special powers from the heroes and stuff that it was a case of, oh, okay, I don't know what hero you're going for. It's, it's difficult for me to tell until we get towards the end what you're actually going for. And the scoring is quite complicated for such a light game, and there's lots of different things that score off each other. So again, it's hard for me to place a value on each of these doors when there's four of us playing or more. I think it goes to five. Let me double check. It does go to five, yeah. It's hard for me to put a value on these things for you, which means I'm just then bidding based on my own decisions and my own priorities, which is fine for a game, but doesn't bring out the best of an auction game for me. It's best an auction game when I know whether something's important to you and I can react to what you're doing rather than just playing my own game. So it's not as interactive, perhaps, as I hoped. So in the end, I, I quite enjoyed it. I didn't mind playing the Devil Ear. I would happily play it again. But because it lacks that interaction, I didn't keep it. So I've moved it on. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad game like Curious Cargo, that's a bad game. It just means that it didn't fit into what I want from an auction game. And in terms of teaching it, people were going to have to know what all the heroes do before they really were able to make informed decisions. So it wasn't going to work for me teaching it to different groups a lot. It was only going to work if we sat down and played it again and again and again and the rest of the family didn't fall in love with it. They were like, yeah, it's fine, it's cool, I'll play it. I, they really loved the coin upgrade mechanism. To me, that was sort of a no-brainer because you were becoming more powerful, but also it scored you points. And I almost wish it didn't score you points. I kind of wish it was like, no, no, it, it, to do it, it's powerful enough to get better coins. And it would give you the option of taking a different route and not upgrading all the time because 
then you're going to try and play clever box clever and take off other people's but when it does score you points and it can make a huge difference you are forced to upgrade constantly and i didn't love that either i'm gonna be honest with you but i don't want to sound too negative because the devil is a fine game i can certainly understand if you can play it again and again and again with a group that everyone will really get into it there'll be heroes that become favorites of certain people oh you're going for that hero again oh you always go after that one that sort of stuff and i can understand it just wasn't a huge hit for my family okay this is sort of one that's got quiet buzz that kind of pulled me in because it's a 20 minute two player smart little abstract and it's called Aquilin. It's from Tens Cosmos. It's designed by Marcello Botoki and it's about 20 minutes and it's very, very simple. It's played on a six by six grid and there are 36 tiles in the game and there are six different colors and there are six different species of sea life and each player is going to choose to be either colors or they're going to be species and on a turn you can move one tile that's already been played on the board obviously you can't in the first turn and you can move it orthogonally as far as it can go before it hits a tile or hits the edge of the board then you can choose one of the six tiles that are available in the market and put it anywhere on the board and then refill the market and the next player goes they move a tile place a tile move a tile place a tile until all 36 tiles have been played and what you're trying to do is, depending upon you're trying to score the colours of the animals, you're trying to score the species, you're trying to group them. So I want to get all the yellows in the group and all the blues and all the reds, which is, of course, directly opposite, because let's say I'm paying against Rachel. She wants to get all the seahorses together. So she wants the yellow one, the blue one, the red one, the pink one, etc. So the theme really doesn't mean anything at all other than I find it quite a relaxing theme. I like to see whatever. I like to see. Cool. But it's very tactile. The fact that you're moving the tile around, it's those stick tiles almost like thicker as all tiles. They're, they're not that pretty. They're just black tiles with a pattern on or, or a picture on. But they work. They feel satisfying. They're chunky and they clunk. And the fact that you're constantly moving them, pushing them, and it's very much you're playing. You're moving something around in a space, and, and that is satisfying itself. But you're moving with a purpose, and the purpose is clear, and every move is important to both players. Because it really opens up where you're blocking off and where you're opening up. It's the sort of game you can take to a pub or a restaurant or a coffee shop or wherever you might be sitting down for a little while. You can chat while you're playing because the rules are so simple. But yet still, you know, you can be vicious and you're attacking each other and you're going after each other. And it really fits us. So between Aqua and the Davalier, if you took them as almost completely... Uh, objectively I'd be hard pressed to tell you which was the better game honestly because they both have their merits but for us as a family Aqualine suits us so much better and fits in so many different more circumstances and we can chat while we play whereas the Davalier required a bit more thinking not that much more but a bit more but required much more investment so it didn't click so I think they're both good games but Aqualine definitely suited us more and that is a keeper and has gone into our two-player area and has been pulled out and has been requested and is going to get plenty of plays. And this is one of the two-player games that I can see over the next few years is going to creep up to 20, 30, 40 plays as we go, oh, I fancy doing I've got 20 minutes before, da, da, da. oh, I should grab Aquilin because you beat me last time and I need to get back at you. Your seahorses were too powerful. So if you've got that space in your life, also I think if you're looking to get someone who's got some interesting games, I don't mean don't force games on people, but Maybe someone at work, it could be your partner, it could be a child or a friend, whoever it could be, anyone in your life. I think this is not 
a bad idea as an introduction to our sort of games because it's very quick. It's the sort of game that people who don't play modern games won't have come across so much. And as soon as they sort of see a clever move and a move away and a move in, and you're like, oh, you've messed up my scoring and suddenly you're scoring loads. It's the sort of thing that I can remember having my mind open up Maybe, but I think Lost, there's more two Lost Cities, but I think I remember playing Lost Cities back when I was getting into games. It, that sort of thing. I think it's a nice introductory game where you can just say, give me 20 minutes, play this game, see if you enjoy it. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. But Aquiline, I think, has got lots of merit to it. Okay, my last actual review for this episode is going to go back to a game that we reviewed many, many years ago and we had different opinions on. And Sean loved Champions of Midgard and still plays it. And I found it average and i found that i just got into a pattern of how to play it so a few weeks ago i was invited over once we were allowed to to play champions mid card with the expansions which if you've heard anything about the game you'll know that everyone tells you that the expansions uh, absolutely improve it because of that really well to be honest i would have played the game anyway because i was just looking forward to seeing people but because of that uh, i was really looking to give it a go now the game itself was designed by ollie steinus and it's published by Grey Fox Games. It is two to four players and take, well, it's 60 to 90 minutes. It's not 60 to 90 minutes, we'll come to that. The game itself is a worker placement game. It's Viking themed, Norseman themed-ish, as you can tell, Champions of Midgard. And you're placing your workers down into this village area. And in effect, what you're doing is you are collecting wood and resources in, and gold in order to either hire a boat or build a boat and then to have food in order to feed these dice that you're collecting because the dice represent warriors and you're going to use these warriors to fight off threats to your area. There are troubles that come around all the time, the sort of standard threat. And then there's also uh, monsters across the sea, which is why you need to have built a boat or hire a boat each turn. And you can go across the sea and you face hardships. You have to pay food for people, but you have a, a journey card you have to flip over and that will tell you something else. You might lose dice or you might have to pay extra food or wood or whatever it might be. And then eventually you're going to get to this monster, which can have a certain toughness. And then you do rounds of rolling your dice or your warriors and the monster will roll back against you and you're going to lose warriors and eventually wear down the monster, hopefully, and kill it. And that's how you're going to score a load of points. That was basic. What do the expansions add? Well, they add land battles. So you're not just going overseas now. Also, you can go over land and you can fight different types of monsters. And you can earn lots of different warrior dice by doing so. You can earn bowmen and you can earn uh, green ones and yellow ones and pink ones. They all represent different thematic things, whatever they might be. What they also mean is that there are also rewards to work towards. And when you have certain combinations of warriors, you can use them in order to get sort of these legendary items which will boost you up and give you big powers. And there are also sort of bigger monsters you can fight as well, which are going to need sort of different combinations, or they might you can't roll any of these basic ones, or you can't fight with this against them, but you can fight with those. So it gives you more variety in how you build up your warband. It also gives you more variety in what you're aiming to do. Because one of my problems, like I said, I got into a rope with Champions of Midgard, was you're doing the same thing. You're just filling up a boat, running across, you're rolling your dice. You're probably going to win. It's just how many do you lose? If you've lost a few, it's going to slow you down as opposed to someone who rolled a bit better than you who isn't going to be slowed down because they don't have to recruit any this time so they can be able to go again quicker. And that's what you got into. So this mixes it up a bit and it improves it and it makes it not as predictable 
and the worker placement is fun and it's tight and when people block areas oh there's also some uh, variety in worker placement now there are cards that become different worker placement areas so they're not vital to sort of the main mechanisms but there is a little bit of a difference in how you can do and what you can do which is nice from game to game still gets a little bit into a pattern at the end but not so much as towards it's the end this certainly makes it more playable for me. Like I say, I would always have played it, but it wasn't my favourite. I didn't like it that much. With the expansions it now becomes, yeah, yeah, I'll play it. I think the only thing holding it back now really is the length of it for what you get out of it. Because you're grabbing dice, you're rolling them, you're scoring a few points. It's fun. The work placement's good, but this can go really, really long. And the idea that it's 60 to 90 minutes, I don't know what other people's experiences are, but I have never have, even base games over two hours like this. I mean, we were talking and stuff and it was five players, it took a while, but it did take us way over three hours and I can't see it being under two and a half hours, even if everyone was, was belting through it. So it's an investment for me, the depth of strategy you really are doing because you you... It's a dice roll. You're just grabbing dice and you're attacking things. It's scoring points. But I like it. Champions of Midgard has improved to I will happily play rather than I will reluctantly play. Although even I reluctantly play, I try and keep a smile on my face. Okay. Those are my six reviews. That definitely is quicker than me and Sean usually do. So I hope I didn't hold you too long. Very quickly, I'm just going to talk about games that came into my collection or that I backed during the time that I was preparing for this episode. Okay. Here's one we got. Cursed City. It's the Games Workshop vampire and werewolf-themed Warhammer Quest games. Warhammer Quest, these miniature games, are variable dungeon crawlers where there's lots of tiles and there's enemies and the map changes each time you play them. It's a Silver Towers one. I can't remember the names of the others, to be honest with you. But Cursed City is one that came out with a lot of hype behind it. There was big plans for it. There was plans for expansions and support and all of that support has been cancelled. I haven't played it yet, but what I have done is I've been stuck at home with an injured leg, and I must have been stuck at home with an injured leg because I actually put together all the figures for Curse City. Quite excited to try it before I got the rule books out, and I've got the rule books out, and I've gone, oh, this is going to be a thing to learn because they're not the most user-friendly set out, but it's okay. What I have heard, and I'm probably from Dan Hughes really mostly, is who I heard talking about it, he wasn't that impressed with it, but the possibility that it's very easy on the lowest levels and your characters level up as you play them and there's different types of games as well as variety within the games and you may have to play a few times to get up to the levels in order to get to the harder games. So knowing that is actually useful information to have. It's not a great thing to release a game that's not much fun to begin with, I'm going to suggest. But Games Workshop have a different perspective on gaming to our particular niche and they expect people to play their games again and again and again. And the reason they expect that is because their fan base play their games again and again and again. Why they've pulled all the expansions is a bit worrying. I don't know who's to say. But we are going to be playing Cursed City sometime in the future. We haven't played it yet. And at least now I know, so thanks Dan, that I need to play it a few times before going to get the best out of it. I mean, usually I would hope to anyway. But now it's like, okay, just stick with it, stick with it. Let's get through it a bit. Maybe even if I have to solo it and level up the characters a bit, and when I feel it's getting a bit more challenging, then I, I bring in other people to play. Who knows? So Curse City came in anyway. That was um, a primary copy by Open Games Workshop who do support us, and we don't review many Games Workshop games, but there you go. They do support us. It's very kind of them, so thank you. Fired Up. This was also a review copy from Draw Lab Entertainment. This is a game about an arena, and there are different 
combatants within the arena. Uh, it's sort of a futuristic almost thing, and they're going to be battling against each other. But what you're doing is you get goal cards, and you're trying to influence the fight somehow. And not necessarily you want something to win, something to lose. You just want certain things to happen. And during your actions, you can play bets on things for sort of longer-term goals, but you're trying to make sure that your short-term goals for this round occur in order to score points. And it's much more about the betting and the interaction between the players than it is about you don't have a fighter. None of the fighters are yours. You're just, I don't know, running a book or something, some sort of crooked bookmaker. I don't know. You just want to influence what happens. So we, we have played Fired Up. You're going to hear about it in a future episode. Rocket Men came in from Kickstarter. Martin Wallace game about the space race. So I'm looking forward to trying that. Sean has played it. Possibly you reckon it's not best with two players. So I'm going to try and get it out with three or four and see how that goes. And the other game that came in, and this is making us sound very spoiled, was another <laughs> review copy. And this time was Chronicles of Crime 1900, which we're going to have to get to because we're a bit backlogged on Chronicles of Crime. We still haven't played as much 1400 as we would have liked and we enjoy that. So we're trying to get that out of the way before we crack into 1900. So it might be a while before we hear about that one, but I'm very excited to sit in Paris around the World's Fair and that sort of thing. And I, I do love a World's Fair. Okay, one more game that came in, and this wasn't a, a, a review copy. They're not They're not all are. I paid for Rocketman. Um, is Oath, but I didn't pay for this. This was a housewarming present from Puria, who many moons ago you'd have heard on our podcast, a friend of ours. He backed it and got a couple of copies off the Kickstarter and very kindly gave us one. I hadn't backed it, only due to the fact that it looked like such an investment of putting time in to learn the game and teach everyone else. And I was really busy at work. To be honest, things have calmed down a bit. So I've now got a bit more time. So I'm really glad he did give it to us because I think I might now have the ability to give it the attention it deserves. So I know loads of people are super hyped about Oath. It's in the backlog of games to be played. Eventually, we'll get to it. Three games are backed on crowdfunding during the time of this. So You've Been Eaten is another draw lab. I did back this one myself though. You'd have heard us talk about this in our SM previews. It's the zero, one or two player game in which you're a miner and you get swallowed by a beast and you're trying to get stuff out of the beast's guts before the beast is able to digest you. So one, you can play as the beast, one, you can play as the miner, you can play as solo as either or allegedly you can play itself. It sounds fun. It sounds like a tongue-in-cheek take on it. It sounds like it could be an interesting two-player game. So I've backed that. It wasn't very expensive. The other two games I've backed are sequels of... Well, they are sequels of games that we've liked. One is It's a Wonderful Kingdom. The sequel to It's a Wonderful World, which is that cube-churner kind of deck-buildery thing. You've heard Sean talk about it more than me because I hadn't played it, I don't think, when he reviewed it. But I've played it now and we liked it. Sean's got It's a Wonderful World. So I wanted It's a Wonderful Kingdom because he wasn't going to back it because they seem too similar and then we'll have both between us. And the last one is the most predictable crowdfunding anyone could have possibly thought of if you've listened to the podcast for a while and that was Mythic Battles Ragnarok. So now you know how long ago I was preparing for this this episode. Mythic Battles Pantheon is brilliant. It's one of our favourite games. Absolutely adore playing it. If you add in that Norse mythology theme, that is only going to boost it even higher up, possibly. And was always going to back this. I think the only thing about Mythic Battles Ragnarok is there was an all-in pledge, and then there was sort of the one below it. And the all-in pledge is, I sort of I saved the money, and I was ready to go all in. And I looked at it and went, oh. I'm not sure there's that much extra in there. So I didn't go all in in the end. I went for one of the pledges below that. And 
I've got so much Mythic Battles Pantheon. There's so many characters and monsters stuff I haven't played in that. It really was unnecessary. This is, this is really being spoiled. But I kind of had to go for it. So there we go. Those are the things we have backed. I hope you enjoyed that. My quick thoughts on some games. If you have any thoughts on these games or you've got any questions for me, anything you'd like me to cover in order to help me have some content for the next couple of episodes. I am be very, very happy to hear from you. So if you've never emailed us or you had some thoughts or questions that you wanted to ask, you never really knew what the right time was, this is the time. It's the Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com. Anything you'd like me to chat about, let me know and I will bring it up. What else do I have to say? Or go Board Game Geek. Go to our guild, put anything up there, any thoughts about these games that I've covered, games that I said have come into the collection, any games you'd like us to cover. Like I say, any questions you have for us, I'm more than happy to answer them on here. Miss you, Sean. You'll be back soon, I'm sure. And thank you, everyone, very much for listening. This has been the Game Pit Podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Head to dicetower.com for an absolute ton of gaming content, and I will catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Solo boy.